Let's open our Bibles to the book of James. We are in chapter 4. If you remember, we uh, preached the first part last month, James 4, verses 1 to 10. This will be the second part, and I'll probably have a third coming up. Let us read, and then we'll pray to the Lord. Amen? Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful thing it is to come at your feet, in front of your throne, freely, without shame, when the Christ paid it all. Lord, we come humbly asking you to guide us this morning, to hear your word intently. You may admonish us, teach us, lead us always to the cross. Lord, may we see your grace through the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, Lord, may they come to your knowledge. May they come to the Savior, to the cross, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord, sufficient to save. Lord, thank you. Guide us. Guide my mouth. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message and the Savior who is sweet, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to start with a quote here. C.S. Lewis said this, You and I need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. Like I said, we find ourselves in chapter 4. As I mentioned last sermon, this is, the, for me at least, and to, for many theologians, the second most important passage of James. It is a call to godliness and to forsake all sorts of worldliness. It is our faith put into practice. It is the internal struggle between our old passions and desires and the spirit that now dwells in us 
Also, it is this dichotomy between the new creation versus the old sinful man. As I mentioned in the previous message, worldliness can be an act of sinful behavior or it could be external. That's what we think. Our mind goes there. Can be. Can, it can be expressed outwardly. But as we study in James, he told us that the reason these things are expressed are not necessarily our outward enticement, but the giving into our own sinful desires. He says, your passions are at war, clashing within you. If you recall, the title of the sermon is Flee Worldliness, Drawing Near to God. We need to draw near to God. We'll find out today. There are three points to this message. Point number one, we covered last, month, last sermon. It was the root cause of worldliness, and we saw that, that I am my worst enemy. I am the one who is at fault. I am the sinner. And then today we'll see point number two. God's provision against worldliness. Because we do have a sweet God. We have a wonderful Savior that not only saves us, He doesn't leave us alone. Because we need, like C.S. Lewis says, the strongest spell to counteract worldliness. Amen? Thankfully, all believers that have that divine intervention, that is grace, as James puts it, but he who God gives more, more grace. And I pray that the Lord gives us just that this morning, grace in our current walk. Now, the world is so focused on our current state of the world, right? The, the, the society is wars and rumors of wars. War in the Ukraine, war in Israel, and other potential actors who seem to have a thirst for war. But James, as a good shepherd, is going to remind us that we have a bigger war at play. An internal battle between the spirit and our fleshly desires. This is a war waged against the very fabric of our Christian walk. And so we must take inventory this morning of our hearts. Where is our heart centered? What are our pursuits in life? Our, our, our ambitions in this finite world? Are our priorities in life centered on God's priorities? Are my desires aligned with God's desires, His will? Well, that is like precisely what James is telling, telling us here. To flee worldliness. To flee the things of the world. And draw near to God. Because only in Christ are we found whole. Only in Christ we are find, found new. Amen? Now let's get a clear definition of worldliness. Kevin DeYoung, and I posted this last sermon, said this. Worldliness is whatever... Anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. In our sinful nature, our hearts tend to want to lean or blend in with the world's, world's view sometimes. We fight that. It's, it's normal. If not focused or centered in Christ, we tend to camouflage with the world's priorities and philosophies. Our focus tends to go what towards the world's philosophies. Search money, more power, greater wealth, 
greater retirement, although all these things are not bad, but if our focus is solely there, as we read today in Luke, if we're not focusing the kingdom first, are these things going to be added? That's what Luke said. But also let me remind you of the context. James is appealing to believers who had fled their home. They were persecuted for their newfound faith in our, in our, in our Lord Jesus Christ. I would parallel the annexed is so large as the immigration that is occurring today in South Central America. Imagine thousands upon thousands fleeing their home, being persecuted for their faith. They find themselves in neighboring cities, foreign countries with different cultures. And here's a pastor concerned, deeply concerned for their spiritual well-being. It seems that in their newfound home, they were having all sorts of troubles within the church, within the church, amongst themselves. Many were frustrated. And I would imagine being successful in Israel, and all of a sudden I find myself in a Greek country, and I cannot make my business grow as I once did past in my, in my, in my previous home. So they got frustrated within themselves. They saw others gained such success, and they started quarreling, fighting, bickering, spending their strength on places that they're not ought to. Look what James says. What causes these quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions, your passions, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Like I mentioned before, they weren't literally killing themselves. But if we put Scripture in perspective, as Christ said, you have heard it, have heard it that it was said in, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or as John puts it, everyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. You, do not, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Listen to the warnings. This is to believers. When the desires of our hearts were met, all sorts of worldliness manifested. Now, in the second point, we will see that God has a provision even when we, we have our shortcomings. Even when we tend to lean to worldliness. Even when we are enticed to do what the world does, we have a good God. Let's look at verse 4. James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What a dire warning. Part of God's grace is to remind us of the danger of thinking that you, you can somehow or some way be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. Loosey-goosey with your faith. Lukewarm. Double-minded. It's, it's a strong theme in Scripture. 
God vomits, spits out the double-minded believer. But we have a gracious God who intervenes in our shortcomings, who gives and grants more grace. But this is a dire warning nonetheless to all that entertain the idea you can be a professing believer and be found practicing worldliness. That is anything that violates and goes against God's prescribed moral and spiritual positions. You cannot be a believer a professing, professing Christ on Sunday and be a friend or an acquaintance to the world Monday morning. This is a theme in James. You cannot be worshiping, blessing the Lord on Sunday, gossiping on Monday morning. Look at the warning. You adulterous people, those who, whose the letter is intended for, were Jews, Israelites. They immediately understood the gravity of this statement. All they had was the Old Testament. Scriptures would immediately come to mind. Immediately. Like all the times Israel became adulterous in their worship. Replacing the true God for worthless idols. This statement depicts an unfaithful heart. When we immediately hear it, what do we think of? We think of an unfaithful unfaithful spouse, don't we? Adultery. One who is unfaithful, has a heart divided, not content with what he or she possesses. Look at what Jeremiah 3.20 says. Surely as a treacherous wife or husband leaves her husband, his wife, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. That would immediately come to mind to these Jews. Immediately. This is a definitive statement. James is calling on to the conscience of his people. When you revert to your pre-Christ, pre-faith nature, you manifest a false-hearted profession. Now, I understand that we will sin. I get that. We will at times show manifestations of our pride. We are still sinful creatures. But if we don't remind ourselves of the warning, then we can take for granted the gift of grace, the cross, and the blood of Christ from which you were bought. We take grace for granted, especially in the Western world. I'll ask you a question. How many have you seen, especially those who've been in the faith long enough, how many have you seen loved ones, friends, depart from the faith? You could probably mention a name right now. It comes to mind. But do you think this happens on a whim? Absolutely not. It is one drop at a time. One situation after the next where we take our eyes from Christ and we turn to our pride, to our selfish, selfish desires, to the me mentality. Why am I not attaining this? So therefore, I, I turn to me. 
Because now Christ is not sufficient. God is not sufficient. As we saw in Luke this morning, that He's all sufficient for the Savior. Then, worldliness starts to grab a hold. Then we, starting, we start calling evil things good things. And good things, evil things. This is precisely what James is saying. You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. Wow. Why? Because your eyes are not fixed on Christ, but rather in your unfaithfulness and discontentment. You revert, like I said before, to your pride. In other words, my priorities have to be met. Then and only then I will be preoccupied with God's priorities and will for my life. And this is precisely what pride does in our hearts. It hinders your walk with the Lord. You start to find fault in others and not yourself. It doesn't matter, beloved, how innocent our desires may be. If it hinders and, and keeps you from worshiping God, you must get rid of it. You must bring it to the cross. You must lay it there. Crucify it. And this is precisely what James wants. For us to take inventory of our hearts. But Darren, you don't understand. People at church don't open up. They're hard to love. This person doesn't say hi to me, so why should I say hi back? I'm tired of reaching out to others. Why can't others reach out to me? Do you hear yourselves? It's the me mentality. That I need to be fed. We start creating methodologies and mechanisms that are not prescribed in scriptures, self-centered to avoid what we have been called to. To love without receiving anything in return. I know we apply the world's mentality to the church. It's tit for that. It's a contract, you see. I must receive something in return. What do I gain from this? What do I gain from church? What do I gain from opening my door, my, my house to others? This is precisely what James is saying. Don't be adulterous in your thinking. Think godly, scripturally. Another means of grace or provision against worldliness is the reminder of God's character, his immutability. Let's read. Do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's clear. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James first gives us a warning and then a reminder that God is not to be trifled with. Why? Because his posture against sin will never, never change. Sometimes as believers, we, we must be reminded of this. That God and the world do not mix. They're total opposites, different natures, 
different character. One is clothed with holiness and the other one is clothed with sinful nature. Here's where the line is drawn, says James. James gives his readers an imagery of two different and opposite individuals. Like two armies in front of each other. Each with a different banner. You either are of this world or you are of God. There is no in-between. There's no camouflaging. They are at war with each other. In this case, it's not a physical altercation, but a spiritual one. You either belong to one group or the other. There's no third option. We are reminded that God deals with sin and sinners with utter destruction and obliteration. James says, you are either a friend of the world or a friend of God. And the noun used here for friendship or friend is philia, which is used to express intense and deep affection, especially in this context, for the evil world system. Imagine being tied up, being held on to, to the world, deeply invested. Now the related noun philos, or philos, Friend is used of a close personal relationship. Let me give you, give you an example so we grasp the importance that James is trying to relay here. Christ uses the same word philo in John 15, 13, 19. John 15, 13, 19. Where the highest volitional love, agape, and the highest emotional affect, uh, affectionate love, philos, are both willing to give the ultimate sacrifice for those who are loved. Greater love, agape, has no one than this, says Christ. That one laid down his life for his friends, philos. In other words, James uses the word philia to depict that all who are friends with the world are consciously and deliberately ready to go to destruction and to death for it. And so, the warning and reminder becomes more vivid. You cannot be emotionally and spiritually invested in the world and be committed to God. It just doesn't happen. Let me remind you that this statement by James is not one to take lightly. Let's be reminded of the ramifications of being an enemy of God here. And I know we're not friends of His, but... It's a reminder of what God does to sin and with sinners. David confirmed it. He said, surely God will shatter the heads of his enemies. In Psalm 68, 21. Or Isaiah 42, 13 that says, The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. His zeal like a man of war. He will prevail against his enemies. What of Nahum? One, two. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. We tend to read this, of course, grace. And we tend to read these things and we, ah, we bypass that. What an image and what a warning for us who profess our Lord. We need to be reminded of these things because we are easily forgetful. 
take the gift of grace too lightly. And like I said prior, even especially in Western Christian culture, we live life as, as if by attaining grace, we have a green light to sin. And, and I don't mean we as in Cornerstone, but in Westernized Christianity. Grace is a means and provision from the Lord to righteousness and godliness, not to sin. Grace, beloved, had a price. The only Son of God, the perfect one, the holy one, became an enemy of God for us who believe in Him. That's where we see the fullness of God's wrath laid out. In Christ. John MacArthur states, God the Father, using the principle of imputation, treated Christ as if He were a sinner, though He was not. And had Him die as a substitute to pay the penalty for the sins of those who believe in Him. That's grace. For believers, the cross is the penalty that we deserved. In other words, the Father treated Jesus as one of His enemies. He poured all His wrath on Him. But we can rest in Christ and in His power. We are able to pursue godliness and all righteousness. Now for the non-believer, the cross also has a meaning. It is not a symbol of hope, but a symbol of how God deals with His enemies. If you find yourself this morning a friend of the world, this is bad news for you. The wrath of God is on you as we speak. But there is good news. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That, beloved, is good news. That, beloved, is grace. Another important provision against worldliness is His Spirit. Someone we take for granted. Let's continue the passage. James says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scriptures say, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now I have to say that this is a very difficult passage in scripture. Because many theologians have argued the meaning of it. It seems as if James was quoting a particular passage or verse in scripture. He wasn't. You will not find this passage anywhere in scripture. Now, I agree with a strong majority of evangelical theologians that James is referencing the whole Scripture as a whole. He's alluding to a general teaching, not a specific passage. He's alluding to the Spirit of God and how true believers are indwelled with God Himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It is a general theme in the Old Testament. Let me give you a passage. Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. Referring to God pursuing people, a nation of His own. He says, and I will give you a new heart 
a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove, remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit, says the Lord, within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. What a provision, what grace. What a profound reality this is. That God has not left us to our own strength, our own will, but rather He has provided His Spirit, another paracletos, another comforter. So when you think about cheating on your taxes, or reverting back to your sexual sins, or giving in to your desires, you have a comforter. God of God, who invites you to pray to Him for aid. He promises that He will guide you, teach you, counsel you, comfort you, strengthen you, inspire you, and assist you in your weakness. Interceding for you to the Father even. What a promise, what grace, what provision. Don't try to nullify what God has validated already. Don't try to deal with your shortcomings on your own. And when your desires are not met, know this, you possess someone much greater than all the things in this world combined. The Spirit of the living God. So instead of quarreling and fighting and reverting to your own mechanisms, ask the Spirit of God to search your heart and have Him reveal what is causing you to think such a way or act such a way. It will be given. Ask Him to help you abstain from evil and sin. He is faithful. He will deliver. Amen? Another provision of God is His own will over ours. And I love that. How great it is to know that we have a God whose will cannot be thwarted neither by human nor spiritual beings. James says, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James starts affirming that amidst our shortcomings as believers, and even when we're, we were yet enemies of God, He gives greater grace. He gives it. Grace starts with Him. He provides it by His own will. James continues saying, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Being a Proverbs man, James quotes or highlights Proverbs 3.34. Towards the scorners, He is scornful, but to the humble, He gives favor. It must be said that James is not talking about pride as, a, as in the satisfaction of a job well done or to the kind of pride one expresses over the accomplishments of, of a loved one. That's not the type of pride he's saying. No, he's talking about the sort of pride that hinders a person from seeking after God. And that was all of us pre-Christ. It is the pride that keeps man kind spiritually dead. It is Pride that celebrates evil things, dark things, 
life-ending things, all sorts of worldliness, that type of pride. You know that pride I'm talking about. It is the spirit of pride, spirit that goes against all that is godly and good. And we see that in our society today, rampant. We know. It is said that pride is the root of all sin. It must be so since the very first sin ever committed in the cosmos, even outside our realm, was pride. Satan, our enemy, fell. Prideful, wanted to be like the Most High. The first sin committed in this created realm, this world, was also pride. It was pride that caused man to fall. But James says, God gives grace to the humble. But wait, wait a minute, James. How does that happen? How can God grant me grace? Even in my best day, my humility is tainted with some pride. Well, let's first define humbleness. Although humility, humility can and does mean the act of showing modesty and a low estimation of oneself, which is valid, that is, the, that is the posture, for example, that our Lord took. Being in the form of God, He did not count equality with God, but He emptied Himself, taking a form of a servant. He can't mean that. But James here is talking about a broken spirit, a person of poor spirit. That, that means a person that has been broken and now is sensitive to what sin is, and comes at the foot of the cross. That person can only be humbled by the fact that God has imposed His will on them. Only by imposing God's will on us are we able to process, profess Christ as Savior. It's impossible by our own will and volition. So it is God's provision that His will breaks us. The perfect example is the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You guys recall that story? The Pharisee who was prideful, boasting, beating his chest. Thank God I'm not like this one. And his pride, pride did not receive forgiveness. But the tax collector, was redeemed and granted grace for beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. How did that happen? By his own will? No, he was broken. He was humbled. And our Lord proclaimed in Luke 18, 13 about that man. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Therefore, beloved, if pride is the root of all sin, surely humility or brokenness of heart is the root of all righteousness. And it takes God to impose His will on us, to break us. We all have a different testimony. We all do. We all came to faith by a different means, time, situation. Someone preached the gospel to you. But what, is, what we all have in common is that God broke us. He imposed His will 
on us. That's what we have all in common. I was thinking about a, an example. I was going to bring a glowing stick as a prop. I never do this, but I, I, didn't, I didn't do it, but I'm just going to tell you. I was thinking about it as I was writing this. A glowing stick on its own, it has darkness. It has no, no purpose. But what happens when the user starts breaking that, that stick? starts to shine. starts to develop. It starts to do its purpose. The same thing happens with God in our lives. We were dead in our trespasses. No light. Had to be a much bigger heavenly power. His hands on us to break us. To break our pride so that we could come at the foot of the cross. So that we may continue abstaining from worldliness. That beloved is grace. That is His provision. Amen? Conclusion. I'm almost... I'm negative. I'll finish quick. I promise. I promise. We can experience moments of worldliness in our lives. We will sin. We cannot and must... But that... What cannot and must not happen is to let that define us. To let worldliness define us. A mark of the believer is one who amidst their walk, they will face, surely they will face valleys, shortcomings, moments of weaknesses, but a believer will show the fruits of grace. The last provision of God against worldliness and all pride is found in verse 7. James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James says, now, now that you've experienced God's will on you, breaking you, molding you, and calling you to repentance, you must submit to the Lord. We must draw near to Him by the means of His Word. His Word is a means of grace against worldliness, against the power of sin, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For instructions in what? In righteousness. And if scripture has taught us well, it is also sufficient to help us resist, resist the schemes of Satan. What a reminder in the desert, our Lord defeated Satan. How? With the word of God. Was it imposing tongues on him? Casting him out? No, he def defeated him with the word and if the word, beloved, is a means of grace. Now, I'll touch more on this on the next sermon because verse 7 has a lot to unpack. And I want to end this sermon with this note. Take inventory of your heart. Measure and count the things that are hindering you to come to the throne of grace. And if you're not a believer... I pray that you have been humbled this morning, broken by the Word of God, to know that you are in need of God's grace. And this only can be found in Christ. And for us believers, I pray that you are continued to be humbled by the Lord because He exalts the humble and looks down on the prideful. Come to the Lord, 
for he grants more grace. Let me end, end with this quote from J.A. Mortier on this particular passage. What comfort there is in this passage, or in this verse, talking about verse 6, God gives more grace. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for, at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation. For there is always more grace. No matter what we do to Him, He is never beaten. We may play false to the grace of indwelling, but He gives what? More grace. Even if we were to turn to Him and say, what I have received so far is much less than enough, He would reply, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word has been preached. Use your word to protect us, to guide us against all worldliness. Lord, our hearts are deceitful above all things. And we need, like our brother C.S. Lewis said, something stronger. Something far greater. Something divine intervention. We need grace. And that was laid out at the cross for us. We have a Savior in Christ. Sufficient. He died for all of our sins. Past, present, and future. And we're able to come to the cross unashamed because of Him who is perfect. He paid it all. The full wrath of God was on Him for me. Only if I believe in Him, I know I will be saved. Father, on the day of judgment, I know all I could do is cling to you, Jesus, and say I'm here because of that man of the cross. Lord, thank you. Use us. You're a cornerstone. In your name we pray. Amen.